Welcome to the AJP podcast, podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. The following podcasts do not follow our usual format. They contain excerpts from interviews that didn't fall under the umbrella of the typical podcast, but we still wanted to share the information with you. Please enjoy. This segment discusses genomics. Ravi Sharma and Jared McMore talk about the precision and personalized medicines. They discuss medicines value program, metabolism and response to drugs, and extra information for prescribers and how to use results and diagnostics. So it's about looking at precision and personalised medicines. From um, our perspective in the NHS, we're trying to ensure that the members of the public get the best use out of their medicines. And we are looking at a medicines value programme that looks about how do we personalise medication therapy, but also personalise person-centred approaches to healthcare a lot more effectively for the future. And we also know that there is a high number of admissions into hospital related to adverse drug reactions. So as part of my role is to look at whether we can potentially do pharmacogenomics testing within the NHS to help us understand how certain drugs are metabolized within individuals and how likely and how well they are likely to either respond or how poorly they could respond to particular type of drugs. Therefore, hopefully help stratify their medicines therapy um, to support their you know, positive patient outcomes and improving patient safety. The test kits that I've got will tell us things like, let me put more in practice. It's marketed as just being for everybody, and it's, it's certainly not. So the company who makes it, who is a pathology company, will come to us and they say, listen, you could, you could data mine your, your dispensing. And you can see, see all the different things, you know, patterns of medication use, and, uh, and you could offer this to every person with diabetes, for instance. And I'm like, no, no, what I will actually be doing is I'm going to look for patients who've used sertraline, and then they've used citalopram, and then they've gone on and used fluvoxamine, and then clearly, like within a short period of time. And clearly they're changing their antidepressant medications for a reason. So we'll have a conversation and figure out what's going on. And it might just be that, oh, I had a particular side effect here or it didn't work or this was going, that was going on. And I would say to them, listen, we do have a test that can do genetic screening. You know, the genes are involved with metabolism and activation if they're pro-drugs of these medications. It will give your doctor an extra bit of information that they can use to help make a decision. Mm. You know, and if they see on the list that, okay, you are a poor metabolizer of this particular one, so you're going to expect a lower dose will have the same effect, but you might also end up with more side effects and things like that. So that's the way we currently use it in the pharmacy, but marketing of it is not necessarily along the same lines. So I suppose it's a, it's a good piece of work, and I think we've got to look at the clinical validity and utility of commercial yes. testing to make sure they are producing the information and, and that is correct and realistic for those type of individuals. But also it means, what do we do with those results? How do we effectively apply it to optimising people's therapy? How do we report those um, results back to the system to make a difference? But also, how do we approach care going forward for that individuals with the access to those type of information? And I think there's a piece around, it's great that we might be able to do it for now in the future, but then we need to think about the education that goes alongside that to ensure that clinicians are prescribing appropriately and that we are being able to conduct good clinical care and medicine use um, based upon that results. But then also, you know, how does that affect 
other situations in prescribing care, but also responsive to care. And I just think having an approach and a care plan around some of that type of stuff is really important. Mm. But, you know, I think genomics has been revolutionary diagnostics in England. Whole genome sequencing has been phenomenal in terms of its cancer diagnostics and finding variants that are associated with cancers that we may not have thought of before and around rare diseases in particular, you know, where there's an evidence base building across the world about particular variants that are causing this. It could potentially form as biomarkers for new therapies for those type of rare diseases. So it's opportunities to engage with organizations that will potentially produce new medicines, bring medicines to the market to help cure some of these conditions, you know, help prevent, cure some of these conditions, most definitely. It's interesting thinking about the utility of that in a population the size of the UK compared to Australia. But it's sort of interesting when you're looking at genomics for identifying rarer conditions you know yeah. in Australia we may not have a big enough population to even pick up one of those but mm. in England you certainly would and the entire UK I guess you would even more. This segment is on career barriers. Amy Page and Amanda Cross discuss personal challenges and imposter syndrome. Challenges and limitations with time, money, the benefits of experience and a family support. A lot of my biggest barriers have been personal barriers that I've inadvertently put up for myself. So lack of confidence, um, self-criticism, doubting myself, questioning constantly if I'm good enough to be able to do the things I want to do or I am doing. I mean, sometimes that's pushed me to do better because I'm trying to prove to myself when I am self-doubt, but other times it's kept me back because I'm so unsure of myself too. I'd agree with Amy that yeah the um, imposter syndrome is a barrier (laughs) Um, particularly I guess as you're sort of entering a when you're making career changes like such as entering research type career. I went from community pharmacy straight into a PhD and there was a lot of sort of you haven't done any research you haven't you don't have these skills like yeah, can you do it? Like, is this the right choice for you? Or So I guess, yeah, you've got to believe in yourself. And if you do have those doubts, it can make it hard. And then it comes down to having a supportive team and a supportive family to sort of help you through those doubts, I guess, and sort of help you take that first step. Hours in the day is a barrier. <laughs> Not enough time to do things. Not sure you can change that one. Financial. I guess. So I went from a senior position in pharmacy managing three stores to a PhD scholarship, which was about a quarter of the pay I was getting. So financially, that was a big cut, but it was something that I really wanted to do. But that did mean that I needed to continue to work on the side to ensure that we had income. I mean, it didn't help that my husband did a PhD and I did a PhD straight after, so we've had quite a number of years of reduced income. But yeah, when you're having tough days and you're questioning whether things are worth it and you're like, well, I could be getting a lot more money and I wouldn't be up at night writing this paper and (laughs) those sort of things sometimes hard to work through. But again, you've got to make sure you're in a career and in a research idea or research area that you're really passionate about and that does help you get through those barriers. Financial's always been a huge barrier for me. We've always been, and 
being a single income family with one, two, three, then four kids. And we bought our first house as soon as we got married. And then not long afterwards, my husband started an apprenticeship as an electrician and I started uni. So, you know, having very limited financial resources, at least at the start too, has always been a big barrier to actually being able to do anything. When he first started his apprenticeship, I think he was two years in and he missed the cutoff for being able to get a healthcare card by about $2 a week or something from memory. And he's a, an asthmatic. So, you know, the cost of affording a ventilator and an acerotide even became unaffordable when we had $70 a week for food and petrol after we'd paid the rent, uh, mortgage and the bills. So, yeah, I mean, that sort of created huge barriers. This segment is on homeopathy. Diana Mill shares on the evidence base and not selling homeopathy. I guess the only thing I have to say on that topic is that we claim to be an evidence-based profession and I think that that should stretch to cover all of the things that we recommend or supply, whether that be vitamins, minerals, whether that be things we're recommending that they can do for physical therapy. I do truly believe that... If we're claiming to be evidence-based, we shouldn't be selling homeopathy. And I think a lot of people are on the same page with that, which is fantastic. And I think those ones that are lagging behind um, (laughs) need to be told otherwise. Ross Siuki and Jared McWhorter discuss the evidence, professionalism. They talk about banning homeopathy and doing the right thing and not just doing it because someone else will do it if you don't do it. Well, again, it's one of those things that we do to ourselves that hurts us. And if we're recommending products with dubious or no evidence, uh, it doesn't make us look very good. Uh, it makes us look like a retailer. If you, you know, if we're recommending uh, homeopathy or alternative medicines that have no proven value, I don't see that as being something that is very particularly professional, and it makes us look bad. Uh, So here's an example. We were doing a cardiovascular risk reduction trial in patients that had poorly controlled cholesterol, blood pressure, and diabetes control. And so what do you think is the most evidence-based solution? Statins and glycemic control and antihypertensives or an unproven but profitable diet that happens to be sold out of that pharmacy? How professional is that? I saw people saying, well, you know, you don't really need a statin, but I can sell you this protein powder that, uh, you know, has no evidence for it. And uh, sure, I mean, a, a better diet would help a lot of people. But here's a situation where, you, you know, it's quite profitable. It's this particular diet is marketed directly to pharmacists. And uh, I don't think that's appropriate. And it's a black eye for us. So, I yeah. I don't know if you saw on the Twitter, but in Canada there was a huge controversy over somebody. I think it was a reporter. I can't, it was either a prominent physician or a reporter. I'm not sure which. His or her mother went to a pharmacy with a sort of flu-like illness and was given this homeopathic product that they sold, and it was recommended highly by the pharmacist. This person's mother brought it home and. 
so it erupted on Twitter. Like, how could pharmacists be doing this? And uh, so now there are calls for banning uh, homeopathic products from pharmacies. Uh, and you know, in speaking to one of my colleagues who who is the registrar of the College of Pharmacists in in one province, he says, you know, it's kind of sad that we would actually have to move to ban that. Uh, to actually make a law that right. says that you can't carry it as a professional, shouldn't you be saying the one saying it? And then the pharmacist, yeah, but you know my chain says that we have to carry it. Yep. So the current argument here in Australia is, by the way, let me guess, they're going to say people are going to buy it anyways. You might as well buy it from a pharmacy. Bingo. Now I yeah. don't, I don't have, ah. don't have it in my pharmacy. <laughs> so this morning I was at one of our universities lecturing the fourth year students on ethics and i wasn't referring specifically to homeopathy but the point counts we'll get situations where people so we have time limits in between scripts you're not allowed to get a certain script filled earlier than a certain date for Mm -hmm. instance Mm -hmm. and in victoria specifically it's not legal to fill multiple repeats at once and yet people will do it and when you say to them why do that well if i don't do it the next guy's going to do it so i might as well be the one who does it and i'm like well That's the same attitude people take with homeopathy. And, and the point is, is that if you're doing something, not because it's the right thing, but because the next person is doing it, then you're immediately making a mistake. And yeah. if it's dangerous, then you should be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not going to do it because it's dangerous. It's not the right thing to do. If the next person does that, that's their decision to make that and mm-hmm. it's their consequences to wear. Same with homeopathy. So the way it currently stands in Australia is we have a retroactive system for dealing with complaints so we have APRA and they follow up on complaints APRA adopts the ethics statement put out via the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia that ethics statement says you will not sell homeopathy and you will not sell non-evidence-based medicines and you will not offer a product if there's no evidence for its benefit in that area now that's been adopted by APRA it literally will only take one complaint for that to be upheld but it's got to have that complaint happen so unfortunately it requires a person to either be put in harm's way or to feel that they have been and make that complaint mm-hmm. before it can actually be, here's a precedent now, because it's in the ethics document and that's been accepted by APRA and people still go, oh, you know, it's just a guideline. Well, that guideline will get you in big trouble if somebody makes a complaint. You know, mm-hmm. it's just a shame that it is a complaint-based system rather than a proactive system. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you could sort of make the argument that, look, as a as a healthcare professional, uh, should you not be evaluating the evidence for things? Uh, and uh, how did we get here? How did we get here? So in our situation, we've got, in fact, most pharmacists in the community are employees of a uh, large corporation. It's the corporation that calls those shots. But it's also quite easy to fall back on that and say, well, that's not me, that's my employer. But uh, what happened to your professional spine? Like, was it remote? Uh, So I think this is where we've lost some of our professionalism as well. Steve Morris discusses the evidence base of homeopathic medicine and the role of pharmacists in communication. I've got lots of thoughts about complementary homeopathic medicines. Look, obviously, it's part of the PSA's recommendations around it within the, the choosing wisely paradigm around the evidence base for those things. And I keep going back to those things. You know, it's about saying what is the evidence base for some complementary medicines and homeopathic remedies and the role of 
the healthcare profession, including pharmacy, is to understand that evidence base and appropriately describe it to consumers. This segment discusses locuming. Liam Murphy talks about his first locum experience, the importance of saying yes, how to find jobs, isolation, and having an open mind and being adventurous. Essentially just look what shifts are available and start taking shifts in different places. I was kind of fortunate with, well, my very first locum role was probably one that I wouldn't go back to. It wasn't the best experience. It was quite intense workloads, but I was really fortunate. A friend over in Broome, um, Dan Botel, got me to go over there for a few months in 2013, and that was sort of really the start of my time as a locum. And just taking an experience and saying yes to things and looking what's out there. Nowadays, it's a little bit different. There's a lot more advertising on Facebook groups and you know online for positions, so it's easy to sort of put your hand up and, and take various positions. But essentially just getting into it, there is some challenges with locum pharmacy. You are kind of limited with the things that you can take with you and with what you've got. Sometimes you're rocking up into towns where you may not know anyone and you're sort of sitting there and you're working and then you're kind of a bit isolated from time to time. Learning to enjoy your own company and and having other things that you want to achieve and learn and do helps. And then also exploring different areas. But if I was to say, to distill it in one one short sentence, it would essentially be have an open mind and, and be adventurous and go and see what you want to do Um, and just say yes to different opportunities because although you may have an idea and I'm super fortunate that I've got the job in the snow and I'm often asked by people, how do I get a job in the snow? I really was lucky just that that job opened up for me and the timing worked out really well. But, you know, I'm my favorite place to work besides the snow is a town where there's not anyone else or there's no other decent sized towns for over 100 kilometers and it's a really isolated part of the the south australian coast where there's 350 people in the community but you know if you it's the kind of town you could drive past and blink and you miss it but it's an amazing place to work and i wouldn't have got that if i didn't sort of put my hand up and take the opportunities i studied at latrobe university in bendigo and then i moved up to noosa for my intern year not long after Getting registered as a pharmacist, I studied a diploma of education. And then shortly after finishing my diploma of education, I followed that up with five months of locum work, which was pretty much geared towards saving money. So I went to Broome and Coffs Harbour and worked. And then I used that money that I saved and spent a year going around Mexico and Central America. And then I came back and I've essentially just been predominantly locuming around Australia since. I was super fortunate in the first year that I got back from my travels to land a job working in a small pharmacy up on Mount Perisher. It's kind of a little in-joke that when I'm working, I'm the highest pharmacist in Australia. But that's a fantastic job because it allows me, I really have a great boss up there. Um, It allows me a lot of professional freedom and I can sort of do what I want. I'm working by myself. Uh, and it also means my days off, I get to spend snowboarding or hiking through the Australian backcountry. And um, I also get eight months off a year to, to locum around the country. Uh, last count, I locumed at about 30 pharmacies around Australia of varying qualities. I found some really fantastic pharmacies that I really enjoy going back to. There's one in South Australia that I've 
been to three times in the last year or in the last 12 months and I'm lined up to go back there again in April. So it's it's really interesting. I had no idea that pharmacy existed until I, I traveled through the town and it's a place that I've really like fallen in love with. So locoming is awesome because it allows you to step outside of your comfort zone and explore new places and you know get paid to do it in the process as well. This segment focuses on regulator scope. Anthony Chassoni discusses the TGA, the Community Pharmacy Agreement, opioid rescheduling and real-time prescription monitoring. What I do find interesting on the concept of um, whether things are in or out of scope for regulatory authorities and bodies and organisations, and let's take the TGA as an example, whether they've got any sort of jurisdiction to determine what is uh, included in a community pharmacy agreement or who should be at the table, I'd say they don't because the community pharmacy agreement is an agreement between the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, which is the representative of approved pharmacists as the single desk bargainer of approved pharmacists under the National Health Act, which are the pharmacies and pharmacists that own the PBS approval number, and the Australian government. And the TGA is an independent body that helps, amongst other things, maintain the Australian Register of Therapeutic Goods and the like. So it's not within the terms of reference or scope for the TGA to influence that. You know, if they want to provide advice, inverted commas, to the minister, I guess they can, and the minister can note that advice. But you know, what I find interesting is when individuals and organisations can pick and choose when things are within their scope or not. And let's take using the TGAs as, as an example. Their consultation at the moment around Schedule 8s and opioids and, and looking to try and reduce harm from those. And there's a, there's been a, a, a consultation process underway where they put up a number of proposals, whether it be reducing pack sizes, um, potentially having restrictions on who can prescribe um, higher strength opioids and the like. Out of those eight or so proposals, not one of them touched on real-time prescription monitoring. And it seemed that the view of the TGA was almost like, well, that's outside our remit. That's a matter for the states and territories. We'll concentrate on what we can influence. And I just find that isn't it so interesting that when it comes to things that are, you know, literally a matter of potential life or death, more people die from the overdose of prescription opioids than the road toll, than from illicit drugs. Surely, you know, it may not be within the direct jurisdiction of the TGA to pull the lever around real-time prescription monitoring, but gee, what a great opportunity it could have been to gather more feedback uh, um, an informed discussion around how we could implement a real-time prescription monitoring nationally to help reduce harm. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP podcast and send us a message.